Welcome to the podcast of Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more information about our church and for more messages, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So as I prayed about what to preach on next, um, I was grateful for the many evidences of grace um, already present in our church. There's a, there's a love for the word, um, a love for prayer, uh, a yearning for fellowship, a desire to nourish ourselves in the gospel. And I'm thankful for the strong foundation le- um, laid by Pastor Tim and the early members of our church. And many of us, including myself, who have come in more recent years, have been drawn in and stayed because of the evident love for one another flowing out of the gospel. And really, it is praise be to God for his work of grace among us. A strong local church where the members care for one another is important and necessary. But I believe the Bible calls us to have a, what I'll say, a bipolar orientation, We are not only to be inward-facing, but also outward-facing, to be a missional body in the midst of our world. And this is what, as Pastor Josh said, this is what our pastors have agreed that I will teach and exhort us to throughout this year. Now, what does it mean to be missional? It's a loaded term. What does it mean to be on mission with God? So let me give you two definitions of mission, one broad and one more specific. The first is from Timothy Tennant. This is what he says. Mission is God's redemptive historical initiative on behalf of his creation. Mission is God's redemptive historical initiative on behalf of his creation. Notice here that mission is God's action. What God in history has done and is doing to bring lost sinners to him. Now, how do we, as, as this local church in Bradford, how do we fit into this? What is our role? So look at our second definition from Michael Goheen. This is what he says. Mission is the presence of God's people in the midst of the world and the powerful presence of God's spirit in the midst of his people for the sake of the world. So our mission is to show the world how to rightly relate to our God as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, what we are already doing is is essential to being a missional church. The inward life strengthens the kingdom-minded life. As the Spirit empowers us to to love one another, we have the, the mandate, the commission to show the world that we are Christ's disciples, that we march to a different drumbeat. We live in light of different realities and we orient ourselves to a different story. So I've I've titled this series, God's People Among God's World. And where I want to begin our series is to clarify which narrative it is that we live by. Listen to what Leslie Newbigin says. He says, the Bible tells one unfolding story that is the true story of the world, and the people of God must live more and more in this story 
This story provides the true context for our understanding of the meaning of our lives, both personal and public. So with that, I invite you to open your Bibles to the beginning of that story in Genesis 1. This will be foundational for what Lord willing we'll see in multiple passages throughout the year. So Genesis 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 24. Genesis 1, verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then a couple verses from chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. So our main idea is going to be this. God's design and God's values set the tone for true life in God's world. God's design and God's values set the tone for true life in God's world. And we'll see this in three points, three values for us to live by and display to the world. God elevates us to royalty, God creates us to receive, and God invites us to rest. So let's begin by looking at God elevates us to royalty. So most of us know what's happened in the story so far. The one all-powerful, sovereign, triune God has spent the last five days speaking creation into existence from nothing. The Father working through the Son by the operation of the Spirit hovering over the waters. Now the heavenly lights, they have a place to hang in the sky. Birds and aquatic life fill the sky and the waters. But the dry land awaits its inhabitants. And this is where we come to in verse 24. As we see, there is the familiar and predictable formula. God says, let there be, and it was so. And all manner of animals are created according to their kinds. And again, God approves of his creation. It was good. 
And before we continue, let us not lose the wonder of God speaking creation into existence. But then the narrative changes. There is a pregnant theological pause before his next act of creation. This time, God takes counsel with himself. He says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. All other creation was made according to their own kinds, the trees, the wildlife. But mankind alone is created in the image of God. Now, what does it mean to be created in, after the likeness of God, created in his image? The first speaks to a relationship between God and humans in which man is the son and God is the father. You know, we see this when we say he looks just like his father. It speaks to a familial relationship. And the meaning for image of God speaks of man's royal status. This kingship is expressed in the second half of verse 26. We see that man is to have dominion over all other creation. They are to rule over it as God's representatives, God's servants. So man is the son of God, created after his likeness. Man exerts control over the rest of creation as God's image bearer. Royal authority granted by God himself. Sons of God and servant kings. I wonder, do you see the exalted status of mankind? Now, David no doubt had this passage in mind when he wrote Psalm 8, if you're familiar with that. When he surveyed the glory of God in creation, he was, he was baffled that, that God would give mankind such a lofty position. You know, he says, what is, man, <clears throat> what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Here, what did God do? And notice the royal language here. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Frail and weak humanity, given the divine right to rule over all of nature. What grace has God given to man? Now what God decides, what he has counseled with himself, he does. We see this in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind created as male and female, both equal in dignity and worth, jointly made in the image of God. Now, how God creates man enables mankind to fulfill the two broad commands that we see in verse 28. This is what it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The blessing of God is necessary to be fruitful and multiply. He desires for the, for the flourishing and growing of families. And in God's good design, he creates man as male and female. As we know, procreation can only take place between a male and a female. What we see here is the manifold wisdom of God. Now, what is the other command? Along with, with populating the earth, filling it, they are to subdue it and have dominion over all of creation. They are to in, investigate the earth to, to, develop, to, to develop it, to make it beneficial for themselves. And how are they able to do this? 
They can do this because they have the divine right to rule as God's agents. God is saying, based on how I created you, now go and do what I command. As my divine image bearers, rule as my vice regents, my servant kings, as male and female, fill the earth. The first great commission. Now we know that God did not create mankind because he was lonely or, or needed fellowship with others. No, the triune God, three persons, has eternally existed in loving relationship with himself. God did not need mankind for any reason. So why create man? Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 43, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Man's purpose of existence is to bring glory and honor to the creator. What other higher purpose could there be? So what we have here in scripture, in the opening pages of scripture, is the true origin story of our human ontology, our existence. A a picture of the divine human relationship along two axes, one vertical and one horizontal, and and might I say a cross-shaped picture. Man relates vertically to God as son, and man relates horizontally to creation as a servant's king. And what happens when mankind lives according to God's design? Peter Gentry tells us, I love this, as servant king and son of God, mankind will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of a covenant relationship with God on the one hand and the earth on the other. Hence, the concept of the kingdom of God is found on the first page of Scripture. This is how the glory of God, the rule of God, the kingdom of God grows. Mankind embracing its royal status as sons of the king, expansively showing the world what it means to live in relationship with God. In a world where the intrinsic value of mankind is not upheld, Scripture gives us a different narrative. Economic status, age, sex, race, even a religious affiliation does not determine your worth. Every single human, whether born or yet unborn in the womb, is royalty in the eyes of the Creator. But even rulers are not self-sufficient. They can't possibly feed themselves, clean their own bathrooms, and make important national and international decisions. I did some research. The Queen of England has almost 500 staff employed at Buckingham Palace. She depends on people outside of herself to fulfill her role. And that's what we see in our second point. God creates us to receive. God not only grants us royal status, but he sustains his creation to live in light of his good design and God and grace-empowered commands. Listen to what Victor Hamilton says. What God creates, he preserves. What he brings into being, he provides for. Mankind is created to be completely dependent on God for all aspects of life. 
And we'll see this in several ways in our passage. So imagine with me, if mankind was like the animals and essentially incapable of language. God's command in verse 28 to, to rule the earth and to fill it would have, have no meaning. They, they, this command could not be understood, let alone obeyed. And one, of my, one of my majors in my undergrad was linguistics, the, the study of language. And in one of my first courses, in one of the first classes, I learned that every human, when born, has an innate ability to learn language. What a gift from God to be able to handle language, to, to listen and comprehend, to converse and respond. Think, think of all we can do with language. We express our emotions. We make promises and vows. We announce good news and bad news. We comfort, we warn, we love, we pray with language. Relationships would be near impossible without the ability for some system of communication. Don't we often take it for granted that we have the God-given ability to simply dialogue with one another? And even young children can read the Bible and come to an understanding of God. Now, the ability to understand makes humans responsible for what they do with this information. Humans are then responsible agents held to account for their decisions and choices. God graciously chose to reveal himself to mankind through words, and he gave them the capacity to receive his word and choose to live by his word. Now, as we look at verses 29 and 30, we see another way in which humanity was created to receive. What we see in verse 29 and 30 is that God gives plants as food for all humans and animals. Now, this is not a biblical proof text that we should all be vegetarians. But this speaks to humanity's need for outside, for external physical sustenance. And if we think about it, that's, that's what food is. You know, something outside of ourselves that we need to intake to keep us alive. Now, I know many of us don't view food simply as fuel. You know, neither, neither do I. And I've, I've witnessed the excitement and enjoyment of, of many of you around food. But this passage serves, us, serves to remind us again that this simple substance that very few of us have ever lacked is provided for and given by God. You know, in, in the story, man was not expected to plant seeds and, and wait for their first harvest of, of carrots or corn. This, this immediate need was anticipated by and provided by God. As we come to the end of chapter one, we have one more reminder of our daily dependence, one other way we receive from the hand of God. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Everything else was good, beautiful in God's sight. But the creation of man alone is designated as very good, very beautiful. And what a privilege it is to see reality in God's eyes. And then at the end of the verse, we have seemingly a, a passing remark, what we've grown to expect in the rhythm of creation. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Have you ever witnessed a day where the sun did not set 
and rise. Only once in the book of Joshua has the sun stood still by God's divine action. But apart from this, history has never witnessed a deviation from the simple order of creation. Listen to the psalmist's assumption that this will always happen. In Psalm 50, verse 1, the psalmist says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. If the sun did not set and rise, this would have absolutely no meaning in poetry. And in Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Mankind depends on God to keep the sun at the precise distance from the earth for human flourishing and survival. And the earth rotates, not because of humanity's efforts, but by the mighty providential hand of God. In a world where mankind is insistent on self-sufficiency, in scripture, we have another narrative. And Pastor Tim has taught me this and probably many of you as well. We are created to be receivers, not producers. Everything is to be received as a gift from the creator, from the cosmic positioning of the planets to the way he carefully prepares food for his creation. It is all to be received with gratitude. See how the transcendent God intimately provides for his creation. But don't we have the tendency to work tirelessly, to always be doing more, to take productivity too far? And in our last few verses, we have a final gift from God, one more reality that sets the story straight. God elevates us to royalty, God creates us to receive, and God invites us to rest. Look with me at the first couple verses of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So we might think that humanity is the pinnacle of the creation story. But there is one more day. It's not all about man. And this gives us a hint about the goal of creation, what creation ultimately points to. So look at verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God finishes his work. He admires his handiwork as the, as the master artisan. He rests. He sabbaths. That's the, that's the word behind the word rest here. But he doesn't rest because he is weary or hurried. You know, after, after we have a busy week or a tiring week, we take a nap. We, we rarely use the time that we have or the energy we have to simply admire our creations. But God, even we can see that he creates with ease. He is not tired. So what is the essence of this rest, this ceasing of activity? This is what we see in verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So all the preceding days God called good or even very good when he created man. But this seventh day, a symbol of completeness, this day alone he sanctified, he set apart as holy. And here the significance of what is happening can, can easily be lost on 
us people who live in the modern age. In the ancient Near East, which is what this describes, divine rest is associated with temple building. Notice, notice the actions of God here. He created, he finished, he rested, he blessed, he made holy. The earth was created as a divine sanctuary for God, a dwelling place not only for man, but for God to dwell with man. And that is what creation points to. The rest, the peace, the enjoyment that man is meant to have in relationship with God. The delight that comes in portraying that most treasured relationship to the world. Now, as we know, this is one of the few chapters in the entire Bible where this paradise exists. But if you were to read a couple chapters later in Genesis, you'll see it all sadly unravel. You know, flip the page and you will see how and why our world has fallen so far from this utopia. Adam and Eve, they were not satisfied with being royalty. They wanted to be God. They wanted to know good and evil, something only God can handle. Instead of receiving God's commands and being dependent on the the bountiful sustenance that he provided for them, they decided to take matters in their own hands. They took the one fruit, the one fruit that they were forbidden to eat, living independently of God's life-giving words. And in so doing, they willfully sinned, disobeying God's divine commands. Mankind committed treason. And they justly deserved capital punishment for their rebellion. Now instead of the blessed eternal life dwelling with God, man is removed from God's presence. Life without God and the reign of death begins. But the story does not end there. Remember Timothy Tennant's definition of mission. God's redemptive historical initiative on behalf of his creation. God receives the glory for creation, but he also receives the glory for initiating redemption, ransoming, buying back his people from death. God steps in. Ever the giver, he provides the only ransom that could redeem royalty, his only begotten son. And I hope this is what you've waited to hear this whole morning. Jesus, the Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, what we heard a couple weeks ago. The perfect image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Listen to what G.K. Beale says. Christ reflects the image that Adam and others should have reflected but did not. Jesus, whose food, whose satisfaction was to do the will of the one who sent him. His delight was perfectly in the law of the Lord. He lived on every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. And he lived a sinless, blameless life. And though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself to be the ultimate servant king suffering the penalty of death on a cross on behalf of his sinful creation. 
And now wretched, rebellious sinners can have peace with God through belief in Christ's work on the cross. Peace with God. Rest for weary souls and burdened consciences. Those who place their faith in Jesus have their tarnished images renewed in Christ's image. As we just sang, there is hope. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection restores the intended goal of creation. Man once again able to dwell with God. Empowered to once again manifest his glory to the world. And that's what we see at the end of the story. Let me read again for us what Yoshida read for us earlier from the book of Revelation 7. This is the glorious description of God's redeemed people. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Once again, man dwelling with God. Does that not stir your soul and impart faith into you? Now I wonder, if you're not yet a Christian, how are you engaging with all of these truths? Maybe you've never felt like royalty. Maybe you've, you've worked hard to earn your grades in school. You've worked hard to put yourself through university to provide for your family. Perhaps your, your inner toil and restless anxiety has only grown worse over the last couple of years. And what the Bible offers you today is not a pat on the back for your efforts or a self-empowering pep talk. No, it speaks of a much greater need that you have. You need to see reality from God's point of view. That you are a sinner who desperately needs to be in a right relationship with your creator. And the good news is that you cannot do it yourself, but that God has already provided the solution in Jesus. So how how will you respond? Don't let this be just another news article or email that you skim over. Ask God for the faith to believe these challenging truths about yourself and about him. Find forgiveness and life in depending on Jesus' sacrifice for sinners. And we pray that God would grant you this faith to, to enter, to experience, and enjoy this blessed rest in Christ. Now, for those of us who are already God's people, my brothers and sisters being renewed day by day in the image of our Savior, two ways for us to apply the truths of this passage. The first is to wear royal glasses. And I'll explain what this means. So I had, I had the opportunity to take some biblical counseling courses um, during my time in seminary. And our, our professor was this um, nice southern gentleman from, from Tennessee. Um, and apart from the content, it was just nice hearing him speak with this strong southern accent. And the first thing he did was take us through Genesis 1, and specifically Genesis 26 to 28. 
And he wanted to properly orient us, orient us to, to understand what type of people that we would all be counseling. We would be counseling whenever in a conversation or across from the table, we are each counseling fellow image bearers. And he left us with a, with a phrase that he repeated so often. This is what he said. He who sits across from you is one of us. He who sits across from you is one of us. And how often do we forget this? Isn't it, isn't it easy to see people as, as projects or as intrusions into our schedules or, or as annoyances that you need to tolerate or even shoo away? We need to see those around us with royal lenses. Each human created in the image of God, in his likeness, having dignity simply by existing. Now imagine how this, how this foundational perspective would influence many of our common interactions. The people right now sitting in your pew are made in the image of God. Your immature sibling, your overbearing parent, your wayward teenager is made in the image of God. Your spouse is made in the image of God. And even more, they are a co-heir to the grace of life. Your incompetent colleague, your demanding boss, is made in the image of God. How much more tender would we speak? How much slower would we be to anger? How much quicker would we be to extend forgiveness and encouragement if we saw those around us with this frame of mind? How much more grateful would we be if we embrace the fact that we get to daily walk, dine, and talk with royalty? But let's not stop there. Our mayor, our prime minister, who makes decisions that we might not all agree with, both of them are made in the image of God. The men getting away with raping young girls in India, they are made in the image of God. The architect in Iran, the doctor in Japan, the, the farmer in North Korea, all who have yet to hear the gospel, each one of them is made in the image of God. How much more would we be moved to Christ-like compassion for sinners? How much more would we be moved to offer bold prayers for the souls of the nations? Very few of us here have, as I'm looking around, have perfect vision. Perhaps like you, like me, one of the first things that you do is put on your glasses to see properly. So let us all resolve by the Spirit's help to put on these royal glasses. This is an essential part of being God's people in his world, to see and treat our fellow image bearers with the dignity that our king has given them. And the second way that we can apply this passage is to enjoy Sabbath rest. To enjoy Sabbath rest. You know, when I, when I was in seminary, I had a carefully engineered, carefully engineered color-coded daily schedule. Maybe some of you are like that, or on the other side. Everything and everyone needed to be slotted in. You can ask Joanne, that didn't make her happy. I had so much to do. Time was of the essence, so I did the best that I could 
to make sure none of it was wasted. I would work intensely for 52 minutes and then take a break for 17 minutes because apparently that's the, the golden ratio for productivity. And it, it, it worked. <laughs> but one afternoon, I was, I was meeting with a brother at the school for accountability. And he challenged me to take a day off, a day, a day off each week where I would do nothing school or church related. You know, outwardly, I gave him, you know, one of, you know, oh, that's, that's interesting, that's good. You know, but, but inwardly, I was, you know, a day. You know, he, he eventually convinced me to take just a morning off. But my first thought was, how would I get everything done? How would I finish my readings? How would I wear all the hats that I have to wear? And my friend was painfully exposing my self-sufficiency. I had become a slave to endless work. Time no longer belonged to the Lord, but I had become the Lord over time. But rest from physical weariness is not what I needed. That's, that's not the type of rest God had from his work. Listen to what William Dumbrell says about this. Not only does the seventh day rest note the goal to which creation points, as we've already seen, but it is the call to man to begin history holding firmly to the view that the goal of creation, and at the same time the beginning of all that follows, the goal of creation is the event of God's Sabbath freedom, Sabbath rest, and Sabbath joy, in which man too has been summoned to participate. What I needed at that time and what we need is to embrace the spiritual reality that God has provided us rest in the finished work of Christ. Our labors alone cannot provide for our needs. Our strivings could never earn his grace. And this, this rest, this peace with God, the simple enjoyment of his presence, it's another gift of grace that we can take hold of in how we honor the Lord with our time. So I challenge you, if your season of life allows it, carve out a period of this type of rest in your week. You know, this will, this will look different for, for all of us. You know, for, for me and many in pastoral ministry, this is on Monday, tomorrow. I challenge you to consecrate a day, a few hours to him. Do this together with your family, with, with a few people in your small group. And a special word to, to husbands. Serve your wives by helping her carve out this time, especially if you have young children. You know, we all, we all get to take God up on his invitation to experience his blessing, to enjoy his presence, and to simply behold him. And as we do so, we can take comfort in this truth. God can do more with our six days than we can do with all seven of them. God can do more in our six days than we can do with all seven. So let us be the people of God who increasingly hold fast to the word of truth, who live by this story and hold it out to sinners. By the, by the Spirit's help, let us mediate the blessing of being in relationship with God to a watching world. And may we do so for the glory of Christ among the nations. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for creating us in, in your image. We thank you for the privilege of being your, your royal servants empowered to worship you. You alone are worthy of glory. We ask that you grow our love for, for one another and use that love to bless our world with a saving message of the gospel. Would you do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine with us, with this small church here in Bradford? And we pray this in the name of King Jesus, for your glory. Amen.